episode 87 of No Guitar Is Safe features the amazingly tasteful and super funky guitar player Rick Holmstrom, and it's brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player, play better, sound better. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. No Guitar Is Safe. My name is Jude Gold. I'm thrilled today because I have on the show a person I've always wanted to meet, let alone interview, let alone jam with, as you're about to hear, Rick Holmstrom. Everything this guy plays is so tasty and so in the pocket. He does old school, he does new school, whatever. I mean, he just, he plays the juiciest, like, blues, R&B, Americana. I lost my way, slipped off track, went for a ride and never came back. Gospel, whatever kind of genre label you want to put on him, he does it so well. He also does adventurous, more modern twists on that kind of stuff. first track you were hearing was Cruel Sunrise. This is a track that you've been listening to off of his album Hydraulic Groove, in which they get pretty experimental. Love it. And he pulls out on this episode, you're going to hear, I'll let him tell you about it, but just the most wonderful guitar and amplifier. Some really cool vintage goodies. I'll just be playing a Fender Telecaster through a Boss Katana combo. Lightweight, fits in my trunk, love that amp. The other thing about Rick is he has been Mavis Staples' lead guitar player for 12 years. I mean, I've been playing her songs since I first started playing in cover bands, and but he's playing with the real deal. It's so awesome. He even plays on her Grammy-winning album, every single track of that album, You Are Not Alone, which I think makes him a Grammy-winning guitar player as well. And they tour all over the place. They have a new album coming out. It's Mavis Staples Live in London, coming out February 8th. Check that out. I think there's going to be a DVD down the road as well. So that's pretty cool. So I do want to get right to this interview with Rick, but I just got to follow up from last episode. As you might remember, I told you I was headed to New Zealand. You know, I play with Jefferson Starship, and we were supporting Toto for four shows in four different cities, two of the, on both islands of New Zealand. It was just amazing. And the, the tour was just spectacular, a trip of a lifetime. I don't even know where to begin, but, you know, the first three days there, we were basically, first two days, just hitting the white sand beach of Toranga and climbing that little mountain they have there right on the water, swimming, just chilling at the pool, all the bands hanging out, getting to know the Toto guys. Of course, I've known Lukather for, gosh, 15 years now, and you might remember him from episode 64. You got to hear that. If you, for some reason you missed the Lukather episode of this show, got to do it. It's a must listen. I mean, he's just, he's just had such a prolific career. But what a thrill to hang out with him just for a few days and do lots of meals together and just trip around some of those cool towns like Christchurch, walk around, find a lunch spot with the gang. Of course, Luke is making everybody laugh at every turn. 
And some of it was even not R-rated, but most of it was. You know, Luke, he's so funny, the stuff that he can get away with saying in polite company. Only Luke. Ah, But even bigger thrill than that was watching him play every night, man. I could either watch him from the side of the stage, standing right there with his guitar tech, Adam, or out in the front, which is even better because the sound is so good. And he's just stretching out on tunes like Jake to the Bone, the fusion tune, or, or While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And then, of course, you know, then they, they go from fusion to just these pop songs. The whole place is singing Rosanna, Africa, Hold the Line. I really can't recommend a Toto concert enough. It's also super cool to hang out with the other guys in Toto, such as Joe Williams, the singer. You know, after a couple days, he was real generous with me and Chris, the keyboard player of Jefferson Starship, started telling us about his father, which I'd always wanted to hear more about, because his father is John Williams, the great composer, talking about how John works and writes out those incredible movie scores using a pencil and an eraser. That's it. Probably never even hardly needs the eraser. Anyway, it was amazing. And Dragon, this New Zealand band that has been playing for decades, was on the bill too. Just incredible. They're fronted by Mark Williams, who plays acoustic guitar, and have a phenomenal, super tasty lead guitar player named Bruce Reed. And uh, yeah, they're friends for life now, I swear. That was a really great hang. You know, we hit some wineries too. It was just, it was kind of a trip of a lifetime. I hope you guys have a great trip of a lifetime this year as well. Some to remember can't say enough about the good people of New Zealand too they really were just a pleasure to work with and the crew man the crew was outstanding we had a great guitar tech named Von Tyndall just took care of us every night the guy's psychic so thank you New Zealand never forget it also want to thank Zoom for the recorder that I'm using to record these shows thank you for listening and supporting I hope to see some of you at the NAM show tomorrow in Anaheim my name is Jude Gold Let's fire up that chopper and head over to the Santa Monica, Venice area of Los Angeles and hang out with one of my favorite guitar players, Rick Holmstrom. Oh yeah, and also his dog, Kova, who, uh, she's still kind of a puppy, so she definitely makes a few cute appearances here and there. Thank you.
kind of suck, right? Hey man, thanks for uh, dusting off the cobwebs with yeah, me here. Well, me too, me too. I took a couple days off after our last trip. It feels good to play again. Tell me, what is that beautiful Telecaster you're holding? This is a way older than even me guitar. It's uh, a '53, and it's uh, it had a checkered past. It had been beat up a friend of mine said it looked like it was eaten by a pack of wolves and shit off a cliff you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's got this big crack running up the fingerboard from the truss rod adjustment here and i i got it basically the knobs were painted green when i found it um where'd you find it uh, up a, a guy up in ventura had it and i, I luckily i had i had been through a period of of a years of having all kinds of custom shop guitars or parts fenders tellies and and then uh fell in love with a couple of real old black art guitars and wasn't able to get them they were too expensive even ones with issues but i had been selling a bunch of my stuff that was like guitars i wasn't using that were in the garage and amps and echo units and reverb tanks and all this stuff thinking i want to find a real one and then this one popped up and it had this crazy story that the guy I bought it from said he he bought it from a mariachi player across the street from the Hollywood Bowl like 20 years ago. Wow. And it had all these issues that scared off all the collectors, so I I was able to swoop in. Yeah, it's got that just gorgeous played-in look. Yeah, and yeah, looks like it's... You know it's got some miles on it when the silver neck pickup of the Telecaster's got little dents in it. From Yes, <laughs> this thing, I mean, it looks like somebody just took a screwdriver and went bang like that on the on the side of it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was able to get the knobs cleaned up. I, you know, took some stuff and the toothbrush from hours just scrubbed them until they finally, yeah. the paint finally came off of them. Well, so, you're amazing because you have this traditional side that you're so deeply steeped in. And then of course you have the modern side. I love that track that you had played on that you just sent me, Johnny Dyer. Oh, Johnny Dyer, yeah, yeah. Big Leg Woman. Yeah. <laughs> Let's listen to a little bit of that right now. Okay, cool. kind of rig are you running there and you got that's to me like a wonderful room tone and a big sound that just matches the harp so beautifully thank you yeah that was uh i'm sure it was a gibson es 150 and uh a, a, 
probably a, a Fender Bassman, Tweed Bassman with the, I don't think I was even using reverb. I was just playing in the, I had some room mics in a hallway that were picking up the sound. And Johnny was just, he just had this voice, you know, this huge, he's from uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi area, moved out here in the late 50s, and we made a couple records on the Blacktop label together, and it was just one of those things I, I heard him say, like, I like, I like big leg women, you know, and so yeah. I wrote a song kind of putting things that Johnny would say to us into the song. So you kind of wrote that song with him? Yeah, I mean, that's what a lot of times... Most of the stuff on the two records that I did with him, I wrote with Johnny in mind. And so we were co-credited. You know, I would give him credit because he'd give me the idea, like, uh, oh, yeah. you know, uh, a whole bunch of songs <laughs> like that. And so I would just kind of put his, his little comments and asides and funny things that he would say in the van together into songs. Because otherwise, otherwise, we would have just been doing a lot of cover songs. Which would yeah. would have sounded okay, but uh, nobody will take you seriously when you're putting out records, uh, unless you're kind of like saying something sort of new about it, you know. Well, that's just a, such a phenomenal kind of old school tone. And then, Thanks. as you know, I'm a fan of Hydraulic Groove, which is one of your solo albums, which I think shows your complete polar opposite side and your willing to willingness to really innovate well, and jump you. out there. <laughs> Well, and I have to say, because, you know, I'm not a true blues connoisseur, but I yeah. did, you know, my whole teenagehood listening to Albert King and B.B. King and Stevie Ray Vaughan sure. and everything. I've done my time, and I got to say, that's one of my favorite blues albums of all time. Wow. Because you really that's pushed, cool. you kept the vintage vibes, but you got the modern sound. Like, well, maybe we can start with Pee Wee's Nightmare. Yeah, I, that's <laughs> a trippy song. <laughs> Looking back on that record, I wish we had made even more of it on this Pee Wee's Nightmare trippy side. How did you go down this road with this, this album? Like, who produced it? Or how did you create all these? Well, I worked with some of the same guys that were working with Beck. Also, uh, we made a, a record with this blues man named R.L. Burnside. Yeah. And basically, where they took me and my band into the studio with also with Smokey Harmel on guitar also, and would just say like, "Let's play. Have you guys play um, uh, Tramp by Lowell Folsom?" And we would just play the groove, and the producer would be in the control room just kind of mouthing the words to it. We played um, oh, oh, something by Aretha, you know, Chain, Chain, Chain. What's that called? Chain of Fools? Chain of Fools, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking <laughs> No, here. we all think Chain, 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 because yeah. that's how it starts. Yeah, or a Slim Harpo groove, you know, something yeah. like Tip On In, you know, like, uh, you know, like... Um. 
We'd play something like that, and we'd play four or five, six minutes of it, and they would chop it up. Basically, they were sampling us instead of yeah. sampling old records. And either they would keep the, the performance intact and just have RL sing over it, or they might loop it and, and then create a breakdown. It's very much totally dance and hip-hop uh, production style, but then they would put RL's voices, voice on it, and then my tones and our drummer's tones and that yeah. kind of thing so you guys are working to a click kind of maybe throwing different grooves down we weren't even working we weren't even playing to a click no i don't remember ever using a click on that it was just play the groove and then they would find a section of it that they really liked and then loop it and then the same so that that gave me the idea to do hydraulic groove Wait, with so the, let's back up one second if yeah. i may so yeah. what's the name of this record with it's R. called burnside. wish i was in heaven sitting down by rl burnside it Is has there a, a one song off there that maybe we should throw a snippet out? Or do you uh, Too many ups. <laughs> cool, I gotta hear what this sounds like. So yeah. This is a precursor <laughs> to hydraulic groove and all that. When Saturday comes, you got to look the man up. up Cause you wanna get paid up, you know. Too many ups. I started talking to the same guy who produced that record and Andy Calkin. Cause you wanna get paid up. And we uh, decided to try to make a, a record for, on me, taking my influences and doing some of those same production techniques on it. And so that's where Pee Wee's Nightmare came from. I was like, I just went in and played uh, Pee Wee's Boogie by Pee Wee Creighton with my trio and same thing you just loop parts of it and then they would you know take a section of 30 seconds of me soloing and then they'd throw all this other stuff on it and then yeah if you would show us a little bit of the peewee's groove Pee -wee's, that, Pee -wee's, that you start off with before you guys got all crazy yeah, Pee -Wee's before Pee -Wee's you took all those hallucinogens <laughs> exactly before the spaceship grabbed me yeah so on and it, you know it was just a peewee creighton lived here i didn't know him but he influenced a lot of my friends that, yeah. that were around before i was and i loved his records and so you know it was something that i used to do in my uh you know shows of my own trio and we would just do stuff like that just um or i'd have a, a new song it was basically a blues like a, maybe like a jimmy rogers kind of like sort of like ludella or something 
I mean, it's just kind of yeah. like a, it's not a Jimmy Rogers thing, note for note, but it's it's my my take on a song like Ludella, and right. then we would take that, the band playing that, and then they would it would turn into something, you know. Really nice mix. Sounds like maybe some weird keyboard parts were added later too, or some kind of. Yeah, yeah, they would they would do stuff like uh, Mellotron type of. Um, on Pee Wee's Nightmare, there's some Mellotron type stuff. And then, of course, these roads, which is the opening track, is equally as you know, has one foot in the modern and one foot in the vintage. Yeah, that's another one where it was, geez. If you heard the before and after on that one, it was wildly different. Um, but it was just, it, it, this was going on right around 2000. We were working on this record. It came out in 2002. And it was a, a lot, it was really fun, but it was also a lot of time spent in little rooms with computers. Yeah, you know, we recorded stuff in in nice studios, and then we would go to these these rooms, you know, all kinds of weird hours at whatever the cheapest rate we could get, you know, that whole thing. It's just, just, it was fun. I learned a lot. I don't like to record like that anymore because it's just, I like to get in there and play and, you know, show off what the band does naturally rather than create something where you, you basically, when you jump into something like Hydraulic Group, you have to jump in all the way because once you start chopping things up, it's not what it was anymore. It's not this natural thing that happened in a room. Yeah. It's something completely different that you're a collage that you're creating and so it goes on and on and on and a lot of edits a lot of edits a lot of work you're trying to make it sound natural but you don't want it to sound natural you want it to sound jarring in a way in a way that to me that was one of the hardest things about making that record was that i'd hear something and i'd go geez don't you hear that edit and like yeah that's the point we want to hear that edit. holy crap really (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, Buddy Guy had a record out around similar kind of that time where they just like take. You could hear them do one take and then just immediately chop like the tape if there was tape. Yeah. Immediately splice it to this other take, totally like the same song but different versions. <laughs> yeah. But it works. Somehow. I think I know the one you're talking about where he has a real big room sound on his guitar and. Yeah, I wish I could remember the name of it. Yeah. Well, I'd love to find out how did you, you know, start on this crazy musical journey. I, I understand you're from Alaska, which you might be the only, you know, guitar player I really know from Fairbanks, Alaska, who's <laughs> working a lot. 
or just on the scene, you know what I mean? Yeah. I've been to Anchorage, I'm proud to say. I played every state except North Dakota, I played a gig. Oh, is that right? Okay. So, but we played in Anchorage two years ago. So okay. I got a little taste of Alaska in January. Oh man, they one, brought you up in the winter. One day it was like negative yeah. six. Okay, yeah. The next day it was like 29, which felt downright balmy by comparison. Sure, yeah. Well, I grew up in Fairbanks, and that's where it gets extremely cold. I mean, as I, the coldest I remember seeing was 72 below zero. I, I remember seeing it on the bank sign. It was like 72. You know, 3, 3.06 was p.m. or something after school, and minus 72 degrees. And I was a kid, you know. I, just, I didn't know anything different. I, my parents were born and raised there. Uh, what did they do there? Well, my my uh, my grandfather's my going back even another uh, you know generation. One grandfather was a was a, a jeweler, and another owned a, a business that sold boats and snowmobiles, which is still around. And my cousin now runs it up there. And then my parents, my dad was involved in TV and radio and and you know, polit- political ads and. He did the six o'clock TV news when I was a kid on one of the local channels. Like he was a anchor. Yeah, he was like an anchor. He did lots of TV spots, radio spots. He was a DJ when I was younger. Ah. And my mom worked uh, all kinds of different jobs initially, but then she worked for years in the division of elections. You know, working for the state of Alaska. What was the first like time you really noticed music for real? Whether it was guitar music or or a movie soundtrack or well, the thing is, is when I was a kid, I, it was all around me because my dad was a DJ when I was young, and my mom and dad both were they, were, they were 20 and 21, I think 19 and 20 or 20 and 21 when they had me. I was the first kid. So, you know, I was born in 65, and the first movie I went to was, I think, Help. Uh, my, cool. pa- my parents were really young, you know, so they were like... Elvis fans of, and then Beatles fans, they're in that kind of right in between those things. And my dad would hear later when I would play whatever you know, was popular at the time, maybe Led Zeppelin or Aerosmith or something that in the 70s, my dad would go, that's nothing but a Muddy Waters lick or that's a Chuck Berry song, you know that? And so then he'd bring me the record. You know, so I I always knew when I was from a young age that there was something before something. Yeah, there's a lineage. Yeah, and I really uh, the guitar was just a toy in my room. It was there. Was, I, I was really into basketball, so I was. I, and I played basketball, baseball, ran cross country. Hockey, come on. Hockey was nothing <laughs> when I was a kid. There, not until my like my very end of high school did it ever like the the high schools started getting teams. Uh-huh. But right. basketball was everything where I was. It was like kind of like a mini Indiana in a way. Yeah, yeah. Because you go into a warm gym, the whole town is there. Right. Big rivalries. For the heat and maybe to watch the game. Yeah. No. <laughs> and our team, you know, our school was like 80, 90 kids in the whole school, and we won a couple state championships against schools that had thousands of kids. That's Badass. Did you have yeah. a special position? Like I was a, a point guard and off guard. You know, I was one of the smaller guys. Hey, teamwork <laughs> though. Yeah. No sport has more teamwork. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't really play, man. I mean, I, I could go. I saw Chuck Berry when I was about 12, 11, 12. And In I Fairbanks? remember. Yes. At Patty Gymnasium at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And I remember, I remember, you know, like. 
you know, I remember that, and I can remember, I, I pieced together like... Yeah. You know, I, I could do that, kind of, but my guitar would be out of tune, and friends would come over and go, do play the guitar. Dude, when I was about that same, I'm not sure how old you were, old, how old you were when you discovered Chuck Berry, but yeah. for me... It was the middle of the disco era, and at a certain point, my mom was like, okay, listen, we're going to the used record store. And she bought me Chuck Berry, Cream, Wheels of Fire, and like the Beatles Red album with all the early hits on it, the oh, double yeah. album. She's like, check this stuff out. That's what, <laughs> she, that's what she grew up on. <laughs> so it was such an eye-opening. Yeah, and there I was. Yeah, yeah. it's like, it's yeah, amazing, I mean, the it power was- of Chuck Berry. Yeah, I mean, you would hear uh, you'd hear the Beach Boys on the radio, and and oh wait a minute, that sounds like Chuck Berry. Oh, it, it is a Chuck Berry song. So so you know, it was cool that my my folks were young like that, and they even during like you're saying like the disco era, or it also kind of like the soft rock era yeah. of of yeah, exactly. you know, John Denver and Seals and Crofts in America and all that kind of stuff was on the radio. No, I'm not dissing that stuff. I love all that stuff. Man. Yeah, but I but in great yacht songs. Rock. I love love me some yacht rock as well. <laughs> yeah, there's great songs, great playing, great musicianship. But there was always something. I remember sitting with a little uh, record player, a little portable record player, playing Honky Tonk Woman. 45 over and over and over and going why is it that i like this you know while all my friends were listening to you know much harder rock i was starting to already kind of go wait a minute this feels better to me i don't know i'm with you man it's like i was a huge acdc fan when i was 12 but Hmm. later i realized that i think i have a theory i just love following the lineage that they're one of their biggest songs shook me all night long mm-hmm. is kind of modeled after honky tonk women oh yeah okay. because it comes in with a g riff yeah. oh yeah with, yeah with no bass one guitar just that big drum sound mm-hmm. and then the bass comes in on the chorus just the same way like they're, yeah. they're modeled after each probably other probably did probably did I... all that space in between yeah <laughs> anyway yeah that's the good stuff, yeah. So you're vibing on that. The yeah, song about that vintage stuff was kind of. I just loved it, but I didn't really play. And then I went to uh, college out in Redlands, California, University of Redlands. I played four years of small college basketball. Nice. Got my degree in business and uh, a minor in political science. Thought I was going to go into that stuff, and. Somehow. You're the bluesiest business <laughs> business degree holder I, I know. I never used it. I mean, I never at all. It was just crazy. You go to college because you think you're supposed to, and you know, I, I I worked in the summers in Alaska construction, trying to pay off. It was you know because it was yeah. expensive. Yeah. And had student loans for at least a decade that I was still paying off for that. It was a great experience, but uh, my senior year. Some friends had been in a band at Redlands playing parties and stuff like that. Every once in a while, they'd see me pick up one of their guitars and go, dude, you play. Why don't you play with us? And I, they had a really... What would you play back then when you picked it up? Probably Chuck Berry. Yeah. Right something on. like that. And then, because that's all really I knew how to do. And, and then uh, 
this really great guitar player named Roy Bauer graduated a year before me and he so they suddenly had no guitar player and he was also I think he was also one of the singers in the band when he played with them so me and this buddy of mine named Tom Nevins joined at the same time Tom it turned out we met each other at a party he Tom was playing a bunch of cool music including Chuck we got to talking about that and then we decided to try to join this band at the same time and we did we played a bunch of parties for beer and uh, started going into LA with fake IDs to see bands play and then I just caught the bug big time oh really so yeah. what were some of the bands that were uh, first getting you all psyched the first I, with my fake ID I snuck into the lighthouse in Hermosa Beach the famous jazz and blues club from the 60s and saw the James Harmon band and Stephen Hodges who's now our drummer with Mavis Staples was on drums that night and um, I started going to see like Smokey Wilson at the Pioneer Club in you know down in, down in the what were some of those grooves can you just give me a sample of the stuff that was getting you fired up that you were watching oh yeah I mean well it was a lot of uh, so it's blues, but one of the things that's interesting about Southern California and West Coast blues in particular was that it had this strong T-Bone Walker, Pee Wee Creighton, Gatemouth Brown um, connection. You know, so it's it's kind of drawing on big band, like maybe Count Basie type of feel, but it's guitar oriented. So maybe something like. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's just all based on the boogie pattern. Or the bass might be going. do a two five yeah yeah Yeah, it was stuff like that. And and then the harder blues, you know, you know, the the Chicago blues. And then play some of that for me for a second. Okay. Yeah. Like uh like you know, like something. 
something like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I forgot that this wasn't a video too, so that I was thinking, oh, she's walking. Oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Kova. Hey. Yes, you are such a cutie pie, and you know it. Yeah. Very good doggy. Hey, Kova. My on. my elbow is very clean now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've never been comfortable the way. You, I mean, you're so good at playing fingerstyle, and you put the pick right but it just kind of goes slot right between your first finger and your middle finger yeah the the pick thing i just remember trying to get slightly it just seemed like when i played when i played like this with a pick the sound was different if i went you know softer and but more percussive yeah Yeah, you're getting the string to slap against the fret kind of by popping it. Yeah, and then the front end front end of the note is different. I don't know. I saw a lot of a lot of the blues guys that I liked that on a play and all said, hey, they don't even use a pick. Or maybe they would use a thumb pick, but then pick with their fingers like this. So it just started going like this, and now it's there a lot of the night, and people will come up to me and go, Do you use a pick? Like, yeah, it's actually here, and it's it's out for certain things that are louder and faster. Right. You know? Now, tell us quickly about this amp, which I'm so thankful that you brought it out, because it's, it's not the lightest amp in the world, not the heaviest, <laughs> but yeah. it sure sounds great, even at this low volume. Yeah, it's a uh, Gem- uh, amp- Ampeg Gemini 1, and it's from the mid-60s. I think it's a 65, 66 and it's got a 12-inch speaker in it. It's got great reverb and tremolo. And my friend Billy Yates, who now lives in Tucson, Arizona, put what's called a VVR in it. It's a variable voltage regulator, I think. It's basically like a really cool master volume that, where it actually brings the voltages down in the power supply. In, in the power section, I think Same it as is a variac, or kind of similar to a variac, yeah. But it doesn't do the whole amp, so it leaves the preamp tubes alone. But it's just bringing the voltages down, and so you know, I mean, this is very quiet. But there, you can hear a little bit of grind in it. You know, if I if I turn this all well, if I turn this all the VVR all the way up, it becomes. A very clean. Oh yeah, it would be a. If I do it like this, you know, all of a sudden it's like you've got a little twin reverb awesome. in yeah, the in, house. It's in your face. Yeah. Let's so hear that vibrato too, or the tre- tremolo. Like, um, I'll slow it down a little bit. What's, what do you like to use that for? Just anything or? Oh, <laughs> just like half of the music that I play. I mean, because I play with Mavis, it just always seems to fit with her. Of course, her dad, Pop Staples, used it a lot. Um, What's some, what was some of the stuff that he would do with it? Well, like, um, you know, like... So that's like um, nobody's fault but mine, the old gospel blues uh, standard, or like um, Freedom Highway was a, is a song that we still play with Mavis. Like, 
so it just gives a little like i remember mavis telling me that when they first started playing uh the the churches that they would go to play in would be they didn't even like to have guitars that was like a rock and roll instrument it was like a devil's music kind of a thing right and so it was frowned on and pianos and organs were the thing to to accompany singers but i think that uh my guess is that pops put the tremolo on because it made it sound a little bit more like an organ and and you can sustain a chord and it's it sounds like um sounds like there's there's obviously there's movement going on yeah it definitely fills out the sound so beautifully so so maybe we pick up you were starting to sneak into these clubs what happens next how do you end up becoming a professional musician i was just hanging around i was working as a freelance writer um oddly enough what kind of stories were you writing just briefly (laughs) i was working for i was working as a stringer for a few different uh, LA magazines at first it was a flight magazine and and then just some some you know, yeah. magazines that probably aren't around anymore and yeah I was I mean at first I was fact checking then I was then they would let me write a sidebar and then maybe a, a little bit bigger piece I didn't know what I was doing I was just, right. just fell into this somehow and at the same time at night I was bringing a guitar in my trunk to a lot of ghetto clubs basically in south central and uh, la and going to see bands play and i would go to places like Smokey wilson's pioneer club or the pure pleasure lounge different different places like that i would just sit i would buy my three dollar you know pay three dollars at the door get a ticket for a, a fried chicken dinner buy a beer and sit and hang out till the end of the night and after three four times of coming finally they someone in the band might say i seen you last week you play yeah i play right you know well why don't you play what so i'd run out You're to like, my car i'll be right back i get my guitar come back in and i get to play one song at the very end of the night and it grew and then i start i went down and sat in with this harmonica player singer named william clark yeah and he could see that i was young and hungry and uh, I went on the road with him for three years and was that after he used to play the fats with Hollywood fats yeah yeah he and, he uh, fats played on a bunch of his records and Kova's uh, <laughs> chasing her tail here yes we've got a dog in the studio here looks oh. like she if she she if she gets it it's gonna hurt <laughs> she just fell over trying to get that tail <laughs> so <laughs> Those teeth look sharp. Are you sure you want to catch that tail? Right. <laughs> no, I just lucked out, and at a at a time when, like, I feel sorry a lot of times for kids, you know, young players these days, because back then you could you could get in a van with a band, and go on the road for weeks, and and then do it again a couple months later, and a couple months later build a following, and and clubs would allow you to to hit their their town three or four times before you built that following and that's what basically what i was doing with all these bands anyway so you were out with like with clark doing these van van tours van tours yeah Yeah. some of them didn't even have seats we'd bring in bean bags lawn chairs in one van i remember or heat going up to vancouver edmonton calgary when the heater didn't work oh no 
yeah, it were just it's insane. We were just was like dues. the late nine, late eighties, early nineties. All the players in the band were much better than me and much older than me. Yeah, and then it just kind of like progressed to from William Clark. I I started working with Johnny Dyer a lot. We made those records for Blacktop, and then I joined Rod Piazza. I was with him for seven years. Her players like playing with you, huh? That was one, you know that's a good uh, thanks. But that was. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm still a huge fan of Little Walter, and all these guys that I mentioned yeah. were big Little Walter nuts. In fact, I was just listening to him today. And I decided early on I wanted to get a good at backing up the harmonica. You know? Wow. So, and there's a certain school of playing behind harmonica players. Can you give us any quick tips? What, is it, what does that mean, to, as opposed to playing with other instruments? Well, a lot of times there would be two guitars bass, drums, maybe piano, and a harmonica player. Or in Little Walter's band, a lot of times it's just one guitar. Let me turn this tremolo off. One guitar playing something like. You know, and there'd be another guy going with a, with a complimentary tone, maybe like. Try to get your fat tone there. Yeah, just like roll the tone off on the neck. Oh yeah, there you go. I gotta be a little loud. Okay, three, four. It's like there's the harp is harp or the vocal is sailing over top of that and and you're creating a bed for them to be creative but also interacting with them and answering them or doubling them it was this whole school of playing that that I got into with William Clark and then Johnny and then Rod and I backed up a whole bunch of other harmonica player since then but it's been probably 17 18 years since i've done that full time occasionally i get a call to play when i'm not out with mavis and i Which love you've been it. doing that like 12 years or something with mavis yeah, with mavis i've been with her for 12 years and i love playing with the harp and it's it's something that like uh hollywood fats was really good at junior watson is really good at and these were local guys fats died before i got into the scene here but his uh you know his presence or his shadow casts a large you know area over everything here because everyone that i played with recorded at one time with fats yeah he had great sound yeah he was he was just a consummate backing musician as well as a soloist um he had a great tone he's he knew the idiom inside and out backwards and forwards was, were we, we were talking a little bit yesterday with setting this interview up. Was he a reverb tank guy into the amp? Were you ever a reverb yeah. tank guy? I've, never, this, I've played all kinds of different rigs, but I've never really gotten to do the Fender reverb tank or a modern-day equivalent yeah. straight into an amp. What's the, what's well, it's a, it's a great thing. It's really touch-sensitive, so um, you can, you can uh, have the amp so that it's set up on, you know, just on the edge of distortion like a say a tweed deluxe or a tweed basement in Fats's case, and 
you turn the guitar up, volume up, and it kind of ex- the reverb goes into the amp and kind of explodes. And it sounds really exciting, and and it's it's its own thing. You know, it's it's it sounds like an amp in a big room, but in, at the, at the other time, on the other hand, it's a little bit more even extreme than that. It's it's it's. it's I mean, and, does he do that on Okie Dokie Stomp? Yeah, or? yeah. He's got a tank, and there's some slapback on. It might have been in the studio. I can right. I can hear some slapback in the left channel and then Junior Watson I think saw Fats if I'm not mistaken I think he saw Fats playing with the reverb tank and started adapting it adopting it to his thing too and Junior was a, is a big uh, mentor to me and, oh, and cool. somebody I learned a lot from. And he also played with all those people that I'm, Smokey and Johnny and William Clark and yeah. Rod Piazza. Um, yeah, you played with all of them. But the cool thing about the tank is that it's just when you, when you quiet down on your guitar, you pick softer, it kind of goes into the background. I have to try it. Yeah, it's not like an, it's like Fender or even this reverb in this Ampeg is kind of like coding everything at the end yep. of the signal. This is before, and so if you play quieter, all that compression and distortion and volume that you have, it sinks it down into like, is he playing dry? Yeah. And then you turn your, your guitar up or, up or you pick harder, and all of a sudden it psh. Yeah, you're saying Neil Young might. Oh, well, you, you checked out his rig at one of those gigs, like, yeah. Farm Aid or something? Or I don't yeah, know it, it was. was Farm Aid. That was it, yeah. Farm Aid, right. Yeah, He's Neil a- Young's rig, reverb tank, uh, Tweed Deluxe, Tweed Twin. Uh, Mike Campbell was using one a lot with Tom Petty. It would be in the back, you know, you couldn't yeah. see it from the stage. But it's just one of those things where I, I like, like when I'm uh, flying in with Mavis, which is a lot of our gigs, I bring the MXR reverb pedal, and there's a setting on there that's, uh, it mimics a reverb tank. That, that was my next question. Does yeah. it is it at all close if you use a pedal instead of the full-on reverb it, tank, which it's, is the size of an amp head? Yes, it's close, but there's something about going through three tubes and and a you know an actual spring reverb unit yeah. tank. You know, because I guess that's what the true surfer, great surf guitar players probably do the similar thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely comes from the surf world originally, and then you just kind of put a little bit more drive on the amp, and it becomes this kind of other thing. I mean, obviously Neil yeah. Young is is taking that to a. You can sit there and go see Neil live, and just get lost in the sound. Yeah, it's just so. Cool. One of my favorite YouTube videos is Neil Young. They call it the Necktie Struggle. It's a 1982 Berlin. Hurricane song like a hurricane, uh-huh. and he's getting the most explosive sound. There's a scene where he's kind of struggling with his necktie in the wind, so that's why they call it that. But <laughs> I gotta check that out. Yeah, that's he's good. getting the hugest tone. I think that's what it is. I think probably a, yeah. a tank going into an overdriven amp. So thanks yeah. for geeking out on this with me. I've I wanted to check that out more someday. I still, when I'm home, like uh, either when I'm home playing my own gigs, I bring the tank, a tweed amp, and I, I usually bring a tube echo unit called a it's an sib echo drive that's my ideal rig when i'm at home and i can bring my stuff 
or like when we went on the road with Dylan the last couple years. Yeah. When I got to bring my own stuff, all it all lives in anvil cases, and it I can do it that way, or like, it, mm. or I can schlep it out to my car <laughs> and go to a club and do it. You know. Sweet. Yeah. 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 I think my girlfriend saw you guys uh, in D.C. Arlington area. What's the name of that amphitheater? Wolf oh, Trap yeah. or something? Wolf Trap, yeah. Yeah, opening for Dylan. Mm-hmm. Did you get to meet the man? I did a couple times, yep. Well, there's a, what's the word for him? He's an, an enigma wrapped in a mystery. Wrapped <laughs> in a, <laughs> it totally is. Tell me about your just rubbing, bumping, bumping into Bob Dylan. Well, they were pretty, I mean, basically we were told, you know, when Bob's around, just kind of make yourself scarce. It was yeah. kind of like, and we knew that. And yeah, somebody that famous. Yeah. My brother used to work at Lucas Ranch with George Lucas, you know, and that they said kind of the same thing. Like if Lucas, you know, yeah, don't look at him. <laughs> yeah, know. I don't know if they said that, but <laughs> well, I mean, they they and and for us, it's like Mavis. Mavis is a total contemporary of Bob's. In fact, they were, you know, they were they were really good friends when they were younger, and our background singers didn't were not bowing down to Bob. You know, they're they just come from different world. Yeah, you know, like oh, I respect him as a songwriter, but these, these it's a totally different thing. And the trio, Jeff Termis and Stephen Hodges and I just decided when we see Bob and we would run past him in hallways or in bathrooms or wherever outside the buses, and we just just leave him alone. So one day it was it was uh, Mavis's birthday, and we were playing a rare indoor gig somewhere and they decided to have a surprise birthday party for her. so we were backstage it was dark sound check and they had this cake with all these candles on it lit and we're just waiting for mavis 79 of them yeah it was either <laughs> i don't remember which year it was but it was a lot of candles right. and and uh waiting for mavis waiting for bob in comes bob he's got his hoodie on baseball cap not the sunglasses and he's got a bag in his hand and he walks right up to me and I've been on the road at this point with him probably for three, four weeks, and it never said a boo. He goes, oh, so where's Mavis? And right. I said, oh, she should, we're just waiting on her. She should be here any minute. He kind of goes, ah, oh, okay. And then he comes back up to me and goes, this going to be a surprise? I said, yeah, 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 it's a surprise birthday party. And then he kind of he backs up, and then he comes right back up to me, rubs his hands together, and he goes, ooh, this is going to be good. Nice. <laughs> and, then, and then Mavis did show up and uh, hugs, and he gave her a, uh, he had a bag in his hand that had like a colorful blouse top that she wore that night on stage. And we had a couple awesome. other short interactions with him. Always That's really cool. funny. Always, I got, a, I got a kick out of him. Like every time I saw him, he did something funny. But I, we did not pursue him or, or ask him anything. Or, and that, I think that's part of the reason why we got asked back. He's like, yeah, they're cool. You know, They play their show, they're professional, they're on time, and they don't bother us. And we loved everyone in their crew and everything. And you know, I hear all these stories about Bob being odd, but the thing is, is that, I mean, imagine yourself being this icon, this voice of a generation, quote unquote, and your friends like George Harrison gets you know stabbed in his own house. John Lennon gets shot. Right. 
he's he's had to build up a wall that most artists today don't even have to build up oh yeah you can't be that famous and yeah things are different when yeah so when i hear people go oh he's so weird like eh, i don't know maybe yeah. he is maybe he isn't or maybe he's just doing that just to keep everybody at arm's length so he can write and he can because the, the interesting thing about bob i mean this is getting away from guitar a little bit but is that you know you that whole two summers of tours that we did with him still at the end you would hear a song hear a minute of it two minutes of it and realize oh that's tangled up in blue and he completely yeah. re and he's just keeping himself inspired interested some people hate it i liked it because i felt like this guy's reinventing himself every night yeah i don't know i love his song i mean you i'm you're preaching to the choir with me yeah my you know because first songs i ever heard Whereas my dad playing Bob Dylan songs on acoustic guitar, mm-hmm. and they would spin those records, and I ended up playing with uh, Melvin Seals, who played with Jerry Garcia for many many years. Okay, he was his gospel B three player, uh-huh. and we would do because in the Jerry band, he did like six or seven different Bob Dylan songs. We did them every night, Tangled Up in Blue, every mm-hmm. single verse. <laughs> That's oh a wow! That's epic a long, song. Yeah. And then you stack like two or three epic solos on the end. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, look, so can we play a little Staples? I don't know. What? Yeah, I like that <laughs> Creep Along Moses off of oh, uh, yeah. the record we made with Jeff Tweedy called You're Not Alone. That one, that one's, uh, that was a live in the studio, everything bleed like crazy. And it's just, every time I hear it, I just, that's what I love about recording music, that song capturing a moment and everything goes right yeah or pretty much or, everything goes you know, right and something even special about it even when it's even when there's like oh that was a little it, it just it overcomes it's perfectly imperfect imperfect perfectly right. imperfect what i meant to say Jeff Tweedy, was he producing or what? what yeah, he produced three Mavis records. Um, uh, and we were on, the first one was called You're Not Alone. It, it won a Grammy. And the second one, I forgot the names of all of them, but uh, I played a little bit on the second one. The band didn't play on the second one. And then the third one, we, we all played on in various amounts. Um, oh, great. So, yeah. What, what did you play on Creep Along Moses? Is, is oh, it man. Like a, I know it's a composite thing with the whole band that makes the yeah, soup. It's been, a, just have it's one been a while since I played that, but uh, it's actually in a... I, I played it in D, drop D, so I was down a whole step on that, but um, let's see. And then there's just a lot of like, you know, like it's kind of like Junior Kimbrough, R.L. Burnside, Lightning Hopkins type of stuff that I'm playing in this song. 
know. I love it. <laughs> I don't know. I, when you're playing on these giant stages, which I know you are with Mavis and here, I'm sure you do all range of stages, but I've seen you on big stages with her, or mm -hmm. at least once at the Hardly Strictly, and yeah. outdoor stages. Do yeah. you ever, is it ever tricky to like get the blues guitar tone that you're so used to? Like, where you, I don't know if you're using monitors or using small amps on a giant stage with no ambient, no wall sound, no room sound. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, uh, so what the way I do it is most of the time we fly into Mavis gigs. So especially if it's outdoors, I get an AC30 reissue, which has terrific tremolo, so-so reverb. I bring that MXR reverb pedal i bring a, a pedal called uh, icarus by a company called catherine i think yeah. they're on the east coast somewhere and it's just a boost and it just kind of warms up the amp a little bit sounds like a tube unit somehow it's not really distorting but it's just kind of hits the front end that's with, the last pedal before the amp yeah, yeah so it's reverb and then this boost into this ac30 which has a master volume that works nice and then uh, I will put a taste in my monitor and just so that I can, so that it kind of feels like it's hitting a wall yeah. and also kind of to help me keep the volume right, of right. it down, you know, Yeah. even in a club or the, the hardest thing, actually the festivals are tough, like you say, because it's, it's all dead, but it's, then we run into this problem with the subs where people front of house engineers want to mix the subs so loud and that really disorients Mavis and kind of takes away from the beauty of the music if there's too much low end. Yeah, subs are a new thing. Yeah. yeah. They've so, taken over. Yeah, we run into that problem in clubs, in theaters, outdoors. People, you know who complained to me about that too is Steve Morse, the great guitar player from solo band drags of course but he talks about these deep purple gigs that all the everywhere he goes they have these giant subs in front of the stage yeah, yeah i mean it's it's like a scourge we were just up in aspen colorado last weekend and same deal just playing a club and you know mavis is looking around like the music's too loud but we're playing quiet but yeah. it's this it's it's like it's it's akin to having a a, a venue that has two stories and on the second story the top story they've got a symphony and yeah. on the bottom story they've got a hip-hop show and there's like a two-inch ceiling yeah. or a piece of plywood in between the two shows and they're wondering on the top floor why you know they're looking around like <laughs> why are the kettle drums and the upright basses so loud oh it's not them it's the hip-hop show below right, us right right but we can't control it. So, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a bigger headache for me as a band leader, uh, trying to make things comfortable and right for, the, for Mavis and for all of us to deal with than, than even the, the outdoors part of it. Now, you played, I've always wanted to play, although I've attended it many times, Hardly Strictly Bluegrass yeah. Festival. Of course, that means there's much more included than just bluegrass. In San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, yeah. Probably the most amazing thing that I know of just because the level of talent is so high. Like you'll see Mavis Staples and Willie Nelson on the same day. Like, mm -hmm. And it's free. Yeah. And there's no advertising. There's no giant like Budweiser or American Airlines posters. or anything. It's like this guy, blanking on his name. God yeah, I mean, him. I can't think of it either. Like millionaire, billionaire or something. He left this, he left a legacy even now, now that he's gone. It's still going mm -hmm. every year. 
Yeah, What's we, it like to be on the inside of that festival? What you've played it a few times now. Well, it's really fun. I played. We played it last summer, and you just we've. I don't know how many times. Maybe three or four times we've played it since I've been with Mavis, and you get to see old friends, and uh, run. They'll have these. It's a huge festival of stages that are. It's a like long ways away 15 from 15 stages each one of them is in its own field or neck of the woods yeah and you if you want to see your friends like a lot of times i'll i'll get there and just reserve a golf golf cart right away from one of the the drivers and say you know please take me over to see the mastersons over way over there and then but i need to be back by this time for my show and then i'm going to run over and see dave alvin over yeah. here and um you get to meet people it's it's a cool thing it's basically built around roots in americana music but they they get a little bit outside of that too which is cool yeah i saw um buckethead play there too hopefully like you know if you're familiar with him played a solo show Uh full costume you know with the kfc bucket on his head playing you know he plays like modern shred yeah he's a he's an amazing into an ipod i think he's like playing to backing tracks but it was amazing <laughs> and yeah you so you would see mavis staples and buckethead on the same bill there which is it's, crazy it's a great festival and san francisco is lucky to have it in such especially in such a beautiful setting it's my favorite of all the festival and we play jazz fest i love it but there's all kinds of amazing festivals bonnaroo yeah, you name it. We've probably played it with Mavis. Yeah, how many shows a year are doing a year or so? I'm bad. I'm bad at that, but I think over less than 150 and over 100 usually. That's a lot. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that if you're just sitting here thinking, oh, well, you're only working like maybe a third of the year, but those, as you know, include the day of driving or flying there and then flying back. Yep, and you usually fly in the night before. Yeah, fly in the night before, play the show, sound check, play the show, and then get up and move on to somewhere else. So, a hundred, even a hundred shows is really a lot of time being away from your family and stuff. But, wow, what a fantastic gig, man! That's it's that been cool. Really fortunate, really lucky, and really fun with Mavis. Well, before I let you go, I've, is there anything that you've learned playing with this Rock and Roll Hall of Famer? Incredible icon like what what what's what's one of your what pops into your head as a takeaway after you play with mavis staples for 12 years you know it's funny do you know the the keyboard player named jim Pugh? he's a bay area guy that he's played with robert cray for years and he's been playing in blues scene for a long time blues and roots in in the bay area and He's going to hate me because I've told this story before, but we're at the Byron Bay Festival in Australia, and he was with Robert Cray, and I'm sitting in the lobby of this hotel, and Jimmy comes, sits down next to me, and he just goes, F you. You know, he says right out to me. I go, what, what, what He actually mean? says the whole, the whole phrase. The whole thing. You know, I'm not going to say it here, but he said it to me. And then he gets his grin on his face. I said, what, do you, what, what? He goes, look. I always knew you as this guy backing up Johnny Dyer and Smokey Wilson, William Clark, Rod Piazza, you know, the blues guy. And now you're playing gospel music. And how you, gospel and soul, how do you, how did you do that? I could get out of here. You know there's not that, there's not really a difference. You know, gospel, it all comes, in my view, it all comes from blues. And 
you can argue about what came first or what's more important or what's this, but it's all tied. So backing up these blues singers taught me a lot about backing up Mavis, how to listen, you know, how to not play too loud while they're singing, um, uh, how to complement what they're doing, uh, you know, um, dynamically and like in a call and response type of thing. I don't know. But, but so it was actually a very easy transition for me to go to Mavis after playing with those people like Johnny Dyer. The thing that I probably learned the most is just to bring it every night. I mean, that's the, the amazing thing about Mavis is that and she's going she's gonna to turn 80 years old this summer, and she's been doing this for easily 70 years. And every time she comes on stage, she can be feeling like we were in Aspen at 8,000 feet last weekend, and she was, you know, feeling that. Yeah. She was feeling that elevation. She's doing a little oxygen before we went on stage, and in between songs, she's going, oh, I can't breathe. Oh, man. I know. Singers, it's really hard for them, of all, the yeah. performers, and then throw in being almost 80 years old. But, I mean, she, she doesn't, there's no half-stepping with her. You know, she can be feeling kind of blue before the show or feeling down, not feeling right physically. And a few songs into it, she starts to sweat. She starts to get something from the band or from the audience. And then it transforms into this thing. And we all, you know, we'll be doing a sound check without her. And the front of house person will say, so what's Mavis like on her, on her mic? You know, well, she'll start off kind of soft, and then about halfway through, she gets a lot louder because all of a sudden she opens up and gets going. And, I mean, I've seen it so many times where it would be really easy for her to just phone it in, and she never does it. She might, she might not be feeling it for a couple songs, and she might be saying, this is a you know, yeah. stiff crowd, or they don't understand, they don't hear what I'm saying, or we're playing a weird private party or something, and... You know, why are we here? But then something will get her going. So, you know, if I, I, th I would think that's probably the biggest thing I've learned. That's the best thing you could ever learn is how to bring it. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you step on stage and it doesn't mean you have to bring it like right. playing on 10 with full intensity all the time because that's boring too. That, that'll wear everybody out. So you, you, dynamics and bringing it up and down and that the vocal is always king. The vocal always is the story, you know? So no matter how hot I'm feeling or what hot lick I, I got in my mind that night or under my fingers, it's not as important as right. those singers. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that was a phenomenally great guitar hang. Thanks for uh, having me over to Thank your you, awesome Jude. pad here near the Pacific Ocean <laughs> and introducing me to Kova. Yes, he's tearing apart uh, <laughs> towels and pillows as we speak. Super inspiring. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. Jude. Much appreciate Keep it alive to your 95. <laughs> Thank you. Your guitar is safe.